Several years ago, I'm sitting across the table from a friend, and he asked me this question that I really do not like. I really don't like this question that he asked me. I'd been talking with him about that person. You know that person, right? You've got that person in your life, that person in your office or in your workplace. Sometimes that person's in your home or that person's in your neighborhood. But I was frustrated by that person. And I was telling my friend about that person. And I was telling him, listen, I'm not sure how to deal with that person. And that person is really frustrating. And that person is making me angry. And more and more people are getting frustrated and angry about that person. And that's when my friend asked me a question that I did not like. My friend looked at me and said, John, why does that person bother you so much? Why does that person bother you so much? I did not like that question because it's not about me. This is not my issue. This is about that person on the other side of the street. This is about that person who the list of wrong things they've done just is one through 100. This is about that person who annoys everybody else and frustrates other people. And that person who everyone else knows they're a problem. This is not about me. My side of the street is clean. Why are you laughing? Today, James wants to ask us a question. He wants to ask us, why does it bother us so much? Why that person, why does that person get under your skin? Why are you so frustrated by them? Are you willing to just look at your side of the street for a moment? James chapter four says this, what is the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from your passions that wage war within you? You desire and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and wage war. You do not have because you do not ask, and you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? So whoever wants to be friend of the world becomes the enemy of God, or do you think it's without reason? The scripture says, the spirit he made to dwell in us envies intensely, but he gives greater grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy, joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. The word of God. If you're like me, you can really only see the other side of the street. You can really only see that person, whoever that person is. But what James tells us is that we need to take a moment and look at our side of the street because on our side of the street, it may look clean to us, but you're standing there 
and it's not. And it's not clean because you're holding this heart of yourself, your, your own heart that has this God-shaped hole in it. Every human being has longings and desires and dreams, and underneath those are this deep search for significance and meaning that's often left unfound. Every one of us is looking for meaning and significance in this life and purpose, and it often eludes us. And the reason that it eludes us is because our heart was made for another world. C.S. Lewis says this, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. You were made for another world. So you're just standing on your side of the street, but your heart has this huge gaping hole in it that was filled when man was created in the image of God in the Garden of Eden. Man lived face to face with God, and there was significance, and there was purpose, and there was no separation between man and God, and desires were actually fulfilled. There was no God-shaped hole in our hearts because man lived face to face with God. But when Adam and Eve sinned and broke fellowship with God, it, God was separated from man. Adam and Eve left the garden. The problem is their hearts still longed and desired and were searching for significance and meaning, but we no longer lived in the presence of God. God used to fill the God-shaped hole in our hearts, but now that we don't live in the presence of God, that God-shaped hole is like a vacuum sucking, looking for anything that will fill it. And so now there is a war that goes on inside of us related to our desires. Because our desire switch has not turned off. We still have longings and we're searching for significance, but we're doing so without being in the presence of God. And so we take things in this world that were never meant to fill our God-shaped hole in our hearts, and we use them to try and fill the hole. We, we look for possessions. If I just get this, then my life will have meaning and it will be significant. Not only possessions, but people. If those people just honor me, if they show respect to me, if, if she or he loves me, then my life is meaningful, that will fill that God-shaped hole in my heart. Not only possessions and people, but positions. If I can just get to that place in life, then my life will be worthy. Then I'll have this sense of significance and meaning. The problem is none of those things can fill the God-shaped hole in our hearts. If you can do the next quote, Simon Tugwell says, it is really the desire for God which is the most fundamental appetite of all. And it is an appetite we can never eliminate. We may seek to disown it, but it will not go away. If we deny that it is there, we shall in fact only divert it to some other object, object or range of objects. And that will mean that we invest some creature or creatures with the full burden of our need for God, a burden which no creature can carry. We have this desire that only God can fill, and we're running around looking for possessions and people and positions to fill that God-shaped hole 
in our hearts. And so James tells us this. If you can go to James 1, 2, 3. What is the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from your passions? And that's not saying like I have a passion for uh, orphan children. I have a passion for homeless people. I have a passion for fishing. It's talking about this broken desire in us, this inordinate desire. Don't they come from your passions that wage war within you? You desire and you do not have. And so you murder and you covet and you cannot obtain. You fight and you wage war. James tells us that there's a war going on inside of us that brings a war outside. We are always fighting to fill the God-shaped hole, and that brings us to the place with other people where we're willing to fight with them. We hate, and Jesus says when we hate, that's murder. We gossip, and, and, we, and we, we just think ill of each other. And the reason that we do that is because there's a war going on inside of us that leads to that war outside. John, why are you so bothered by that person? Why does it bother you so much? Why are you so angry right now? Well, it, it, it wasn't that, that that person was innocent. No, by far they were not innocent. Why does it bother me so much? Do I think my life only has significance when I have control? Do I think my life only has meaning when there's peace and no conflict? Do, do I think my life only has meaning when that person just stops? See, when people get in our way of trying to fill that God-shaped hole in our hearts, they become villains. They become villains in our minds. Look, my deepest need, what I'm looking to fill my God-shaped hole in my heart, I need security, and you're not allowing me to feel secure villain. I'm looking for happiness to fill that God-shaped hole in my heart, and you're not making me happy. You're a villain. I need comfort to fill that God-shaped hole in my heart, and you're making me uncomfortable. Villain. Why does it matter so much, John? See, as you begin to ask yourself that question, you'll see that as you're standing on your side of the street, holding your heart, there is a huge hole in your heart that only God can fill. And when someone else gets in your way of you filling it with something else, villain, you vilify them. I need honor, and you're not honoring me. I need respect and love. I, I, I need my kids to be as happy as your kids are. And because they're not, I'm mad at you. I need my life to look a certain way. I, I need everyone to know that you're not as great of a person as I am. Why does everybody love them when I know who they really are? Their life is so free or they're so fit and in shape and we end up waging war against them because they have something that we want to fill the God-shaped hole in our heart. And that war within turns to a war outside, a war outside a battle. Why do, marital, why do marriages end in irreconcilable differences? Oftentimes, we're really just looking to that other person to fill that God-shaped hole in our heart, and they can't do it. Why do bands split up because of creative differences? Well, maybe they disagree on one line of a song and the wording that that should have. 
and someone gets offended and doesn't feel like they're honored and respected in the way that they should, and all of a sudden the band splits up. Wars within lead to wars outside. And the funny thing is, is a lot of times it's not bad stuff that we're fighting over. It's like good stuff. Feeling comfort, feeling secure, feeling love, feeling respect from other people. That's not bad. That's good stuff. It's just not God's stuff. It's not meant to fill the hole in our hearts because the shape of that hole in our hearts is God-shaped. Our prayer life reveals this. Our prayer life reveals this. It says, you do not have because you do not ask, and you ask and you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Excuse me. Sometimes we don't pray because we believe the lie that God doesn't care and he doesn't listen, and that's a lie. But sometimes, um, sometimes we can't pray because we know we're not praying according to God's will. Has your heart ever wanted to pray like, oh, merciful God, sovereign Lord, allow me to meet that person in a dark alley so I can crush their soul? Can't pray that prayer. Sometimes we don't pray because we think God doesn't care, but sometimes we can't pray because we know it's not according to God's will. But sometimes we shouldn't pray for things because our prayers are really based on disordered desires. Like our heart is on a quest to fill that God-shaped hole in our hearts, and we're asking God to give us another God. Our heart's quest for comfort manifests in some requests to God. Rather than receiving comfort from God, we go to God and ask him to give us something else to fill that God-shaped hole in our hearts. Having an advancement in your job is not bad. Lord, give me that position. But how often is your heart also searching for glory, for status, for honor? When you ask for that position, man, I want people to respect me. I want people to know who I am. What's behind that is you're really looking for something to fill your God-shaped hole in your heart. What about looking for a spouse? Lord, I want someone that is like this level of good looking. Well, you want to be attracted to them. That's not bad. But at the same time, is it a little bit about that, like a little bit of status? Like I want a good looking spouse so that maybe people will know something about me. So often our prayers reveal our disordered desires. And sometimes really what we should do is just ask God to change us and change our desires. Because really we're asking God to give us a whole other God so many times in our prayers. Even sometimes our dreams. Sometimes our dreams. Now dreams are not bad. Ambition to advance your life is not bad. You want your plans to succeed. But sometimes our dreams are really on, are like centered around disordered desires. Like, I want to do this because I want people to know who I am. Here's a good test, though. Here's a good question. If you don't feel your life is significant until your dreams come to expression... That's a, that's a sign that you've got a disordered desire around your dream. My life is not meaningful until my dreams come true. My life is not significant until I advance to this certain level. God's like, what? 
Your life is meaningful and significant because I love you. Your life is meaningful and significant because I sent my son to die for you because you're part of the people that I love. And see, what that reveals about ourselves on our side of the street is that we've got these longings and loyalties that see past the love of God and really want something else besides God. God's love isn't quite enough for us. We want something else to fill that God-shaped hole in our hearts. In verse four and five, if you can put that up, James says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? So whoever wants to be the friend of the world becomes the enemy of God, or do you think it's without reason that the scripture says the spirit he made to dwell in us envies intensely? See, if you know Jesus Christ, you are in a spiritual marriage with God. You've bound yourself to him, and even more important, he's bound himself to you. Never will he leave you. Never will he forsake you. The blood of Christ has cleansed you from all your sins. You're in the family of God. You're sealed with the Holy Spirit. You've been baptized so that in your old life, uh, your old life is crucified with Christ, and your new life is defined by his resurrection. But part of your calling in that is to forsake all others. It's to forsake all others. And yet we thought God would be okay with us having something little on the side. You adulterous people. God's not okay. God wants all of us. He wants our longings and our desires. He wants the deepest parts of us. And he says that when our loyalties lie elsewhere, when we long for love that only he can fill, it's really friendship with the world. Now, friendship with the world, when we think of the word friends, we think of Facebook or we think people we hang out with. But what James means by that is really like a binding together. It's saying that that is the ultimate thing in my life. It's where my loyalty lies. And so what James is saying, when you become friends with the world, you're choosing the world's value system over God. I'm gonna see God through the lens of the world rather than seeing the world through the lens and perspective of God. It's allowing the world to shape us more than being shaped by the love and righteousness and mercy and justice of God. And James calls it for what it is. He says, look, you can't have the world on the side. You can't let your heart go after those things. You have to continually bring it back to the one that you've committed yourself to because if you let your heart go and search for things to fill your heart besides God, you become an enemy of God. God deeply longs to know you in the deepest part of your heart. And he longs for you to long for him. And yet our hearts are so full of these disordered desires. I could just say to you, like, stop wanting things that aren't from God. And you would still do it. Like, you would have a hard time turning it off because that's just the way our hearts are. They, the, the vain things that charm me most is what one of those ancient hymns says. And so we look at our side of the street and all of a sudden it's not so clean. It's not so clean and we find this place where, where we were worried about what was happening over there on that side of the street, but all of a sudden we realize our, kind of, our side of the street's kind of a mess 
because we've been chasing after all these things just to fill the God-shaped hole in our heart. But there is hope. There is hope. People of God, there is hope. And that hope comes in verse 6 from the God who gives greater grace. Who needs that grace with your crazy, wild heart, that God-shaped hole in your heart that you will try and use anything to fill? I need that grace, and I know you need that grace. Grace is unmerited favor. Grace is that God moves towards you before you even really understand what's going on. It's while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. It's that God's love isn't just unconditional, it's counterconditional. God doesn't measure out his love for you based on how well you love him. He lavishly pours his love on you. Amen. And that is grace. Our God gives greater grace and he looks down and he sees our side of the street is a complete mess. And rather than judging us, he sends his son Jesus to be judged for us. In God's great love for us, the Father sends the Son, the second person of the Trinity, to come and die for sinners and die for people who will make a God out of anything. We exchange the truth of God for a lie, and yet God came in the person of Jesus to die for us. That is grace, and that is Jesus Christ. And if you've never received Jesus, we'd love, uh, we'd love to talk that through with you because it will change your life and it will change the way you live and it will change the way you love. And how you receive Jesus the first time or how you come to him the millionth time is through humility. Verse seven says, where he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Really, humility starts with stopping to compare yourself to that person on the other side of the street and change your reference point from that person to God. And when you begin to see who God is, and when you begin to compare your side of the street to him, all of a sudden, it lowers you a little bit. It lowers you a little bit. That is the humility before God. We stop comparing ourselves to others and start looking to God as a reference point. We start to admit, you know what? My side of the street is not as clean as I had once thought. My heart is not as pure as I had once thought. I'm going to stop comparing myself to whether I'm better than that person or who's done what, and I'm going to start looking to you. But not only that, we start saying, I'm going to bend my will to yours. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to submit. If you want something, God, that doesn't make sense to me, I'm still going to kneel down before you and follow you. It doesn't mean I can't ask questions, God, but, but I choose to yield and submit to you. I'm not going to submit to my desires. I'm not going to submit to the temptations of the devil. I'm going to say no to the devil, even, even though that desire seems to make sense. Following that desire seems to bring freedom and life, but you say it doesn't. I'm going to yield myself to you. I'm going to trust in you, Lord, and submit to you. Humility. Humbling ourselves before the Lord. But not only that, 
turning away from our sin and turning towards him. Repentance. Verses 8 through 9 says this. You can flip it. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. And let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. It's one of like the most, almost feels like one of the most depressing verses in the Bible, doesn't it? Uh, and that's because we have a bad idea of repentance. When I was in college, the first time I remember hearing the word repentance was on the concourse at Auburn University. And this preacher would stand up on a stool as all the students were passing by, thousands of students between classes, and he would just stand up there with the Bible and yell, repent! And he would give like these, I see you smoking cigarettes, and I, I see that your skirt is too short, and this kind of stuff. And, and that was the first experience I had of repentance. And you see, he missed it. He really missed it. Because repentance isn't about stopping to drink and smoke and chew or go with boys and girls who do. Repentance is much deeper than that. Look what James says. It's a turning, go back uh, to nine. It's a drawing near to God and he will draw near to you. It's a cleansing of the hands and a purifying of the heart. What I love about this is it says turn from your, your life, turn from your ways, turn from your sin, turn from your desire, disordered desires. And when you turn to God, he will smash you. No, he will draw near to you with his love and his grace and his mercy. See, repentance can be something of joy something where you come to life in new ways. You, can, you quit following your old way of life and you come alive to God in new ways. And what that looks like, what repentance actually looks like is a cleansing of the hands and a purifying of the hearts. That means it's both an external and internal change. It's putting down what God says to put down, but it's also asking God to change your heart and make you love what he loves. It's not just feeling sorry, it's a life switch. And you did that when you first came to Christ, but the reality is you have to do that every day. I mean, when you get angry and you get frustrated and you get mad or, or, or you get caught up in lust or you get overcome by anger, wh whatever, there's this daily, maybe, well, for me, it's every minute. I don't know about you, but this turning away from myself and my choices and my path and saying, God, I'm drawing near to you. What do I need to put down from my hands? And how do I need to change my heart attitude? Would you help me do it? Would you help me turn? Would you help me repent? And the amazing thing is that God meets us in that. As we take our sin seriously, that's what be miserable and mourn and weep. Now, that doesn't sound like a fun way to live our Christian life. What it is talking about is seeing our sin through the eyes of God. I had a friend once who was in this pattern of doing something that the Bible was very clear on not doing. And he told me, he said, I just don't feel bad about it. And I was like, well, okay, there's grace, bro. I'm, I'm here with you, I'm not judging you, but it's not really about how you feel about it. You need to reference how God feels about it and begin making decisions and looking at your situation and your side of the street based on how he feels about it. And when you do that, it actually does make you sad. 
Because it's not about getting away with something or not getting away with something. It's about God's great love for you and you breaking his heart by rebelling against him. And you actually want to change. You want to change. It's, it's, that, it's being in that marriage where someone loves you unconditionally and you continually do something stupid over and over and over again. And, and then finally it clicks when you see that tear in their eye and you go, how can I be happy with myself and my behavior when it's hurt you, when it's meant that much to you? James is telling us to take our sin seriously. Look at that internal and external change. It's, it's about living differently, but also loving differently, loving what God loves. And we, can t- we stop comparing uh, to other people. And when we do that, that actually does bring a heart change. Paul writes about something called godly sorrow. And godly sorrow is looking at your sin from God's perspective. It's not about getting caught or not caught or like how you feel about it. It's really like, oh man, I've broken God's heart by doing this over and over and over again, by loving something more than I love him. Change me. And the amazing thing when we're willing to humble ourselves and turn to God is that there's incredible hope. There's incredible hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you can put up verse 10. Verse 10 says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. Isn't that amazing that when you lower yourself before Jesus, he lifts you back up. Jesus tells a story in Luke 18, and I'm going to flip there. I want to read it to you. It's the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked down on everyone else. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee was standing and praying like this about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other people. I'm not greedy, unrighteous, not an adulterer, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of everything I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even raise his eyes eyes to heaven, but kept striking his chest and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, Jesus says, the one, this one went down to his house justified, exalted, righteous, rather than the other, because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. When we acknowledge what's happening on our side of the street, and when we look to the God of all grace, when we humble ourselves before him, and when we turn to him, he picks us up. It's almost as if we can hear the voice of God saying, your side of the street is a mess. Your heart is a mess. But I love you. Turn away from your own will. Turn to me. There is grace for every day. There's grace for every sin. There's grace for every disordered desire. And get up off your knee. Come to me with that heart that longs for so many things. And let me fill that God-shaped hole in your heart with myself and my love and my mercy and my grace. 
and keep doing that turn every day from yourself turning to me. But one day you will not have to turn anymore because you will see me face to face in the new city. And all your longings will be fulfilled and all your desires will no longer be disordered and you will have significance and meaning because you will live every day in the presence of King Jesus. Friends, we hope, we long, but one day God will fill the God-shaped hole in our hearts. From now until then, let's stop throwing rocks onto the other side of the street and let's look to God. Let's look to him for meaning and significance. Let's let him define who we are and what's good and bad. Let, let's find that as we even are filled by his love in our hearts, we might have love for that person on the other side of the street. Let's pray. God, thank you for being the God of grace, the God who is righteous and holy and yet forgives and accepts and always has more grace than we have sin. I pray that you would change us and transform us. We often pray that you would help us to love more, not just love other people, but to love you and love what you love in order that we might be changed. We thank you that you have been present with us, and I pray that each person would be encouraged this morning to take an honest look at their side of the street, and yet, after that, look deeply at your grace. And all God's people said, amen. Would you stand and sing with me?